In this episode of the BFR Better for Results podcast, we sit down with Tim Werner, Associate Professor at Salisbury University in Maryland, whose expertise is in arterial stiffness. In the continual pursuit of optimal, Tim's expertise in arterial stiffness helps explain the huge therapeutic impact that both resistance and aerobic exercise has on systemic health. In this episode, we dive into the physiology of arterial stiffness, why we should care about arterial stiffness, how disease impacts arterial stiffness, and its potential impact on exercise prescription. We also spent some time talking about our work together in investigating the impact of autoregulation in arterial stiffness in upper and lower body exercise. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Hi, Nick, and hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm definitely looking forward to this, diving a little bit deeper into the uh, influence of arterial stiffness on our health and how exercise can definitely influence it. So, uh, And we all know how important exercise is. But before we get started, um, just want to give the audience a little uh, sneak peek at who you are, and you know why why you ended up at Salisbury and kind of you know how you got interested in arterial stiffness in the first place because that's a mm-hmm. very interesting topic given that when we strength train a lot of times people are focused on more of the peripheral or brachial measures of systolic and diastolic blood pressure but people forget that the blood's got to come from somewhere right it's got to come from from the pumping heart and measuring that uh, those values could have some significance in our exercise prescriptions. So I'll let you take it away. Well, uh, like a lot of you, I I started off wanting to work with healthy athletic populations. And so my uh, undergraduate and my master's degree was mostly focused on just improving rowing performance. And that's, that's where the, a lot of our research was headed then I got in, uh, involved in Virginia Tech, and Virginia Tech was very clinically oriented. Uh, the uh, researcher there, Dr. Kevin Davey, who's still there, uh, took me in and introduced me to arterial stiffness and why I needed to know it and why we need to study it. And, and so under his advisement and mentorship, I, I, I came very attuned and um, uh, very accustomed to the exercise regimen as it applies to arterial stiffness. Now, what, what that means is that we, we spent a lot of time in the lab capturing indices of arterial stiffness, which we could get in later. But more importantly, we were interested on how you can slow this thing down or what speeds it up. And so uh, Dr. Kevin Davies' lab was very interested in things that might accelerate um, arterial stiffness. And so what he did is he, uh, one of his studies, he, he actually had subjects gain weight to prove that weight gain is associated with arterial stiffness. Now, when I came along, the, a lot of our studies were focusing on drugs, um, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, and things like that. And whether or not a combination of those drugs with exercise or exercise alone was more beneficial. and what we're finding 
is yeah typically the the, the synergistic approach is probably better but uh i mean exercise can still be very very beneficial at the end of the day so that got me uh really interested and so my, my dissertation was on the effect of um, exercise and uh, beta blockers on arterial stiffness and then being in that world for a while and the competitiveness, the cutthroat environment kind of steered me towards a, a D2, D3 school setting. Um, I, I, I knew that I did not want to live the life of a research one professor. Uh, a lot of those folks, they're, they're spending many hours uh, on weekends collecting data. And um, I was, I, I had this, a passion for teaching as well. And so I want I wanted to be at an institution where I can primarily focus on teaching, but I also wanted to play around in the lab a lot. And so Salisbury University was a good fit for me. So it allows me to do both. And, and so uh, in my little arena inside Salisbury University, um, I, I've dabbled in many studies involved with looking at arterial stiffness with resistance training using creatine, using fish oil. We, we did a study on the effect of CrossFit training in our stuff. It's basically just trying to characterize how the uh, different modalities, intensities can affect uh, arterial stiffness. And if they even have a negative impact, uh, that is something that we're very interested in discovering. Uh, for the most part, no. Um, Exercise seems to be very protective and in some cases rescuing folks from a fate of our uh, arterial stiffness. So it is, um, uh, it is indeed medicine uh, as I, uh, I teach my students. It's, it's, it's literally just get up, do some exercise and you can improve your cardiovascular system without the need of medication. It's, it's, it's really, really potent stuff. So uh, a lot How of the stuff- this? Let's, let's, let's talk first and foremost about what actually arterial Sorry, stiffness you a lot of questions is. there. <laughs> and, and so we understand that we can impact it through exercise, which is yeah. great. Um, I think exercise as most would agree is one of the best ways to improve overall health and wellness, but that still begs the question of what exactly is arterial stiffness? We just lost your mic. So you just... Uh, Can you hear me now? Yeah, now we're good. Okay. So what is arterial stiffness? Arterial stiffness is a process of the, the protein network, the uh, extracellular matrix of the uh, blood vessels changing over time a very healthy elastic arterial system will have a high composition of elastin protein inside of it that allows the blood vessels to stretch and recoil as blood is being pushed through it. Arterial stiffness is a changing of that composition into something that's more stiff in general. And generally the, 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 the current rationale is that the elastin filaments or proteins become fragmented or reabsorbed and they're replaced with collagen fibers. And those collagen fibers bring about a characteristic inside the blood vessel where it is unable to expand in recoil. So it's stiff. And the issue with that is now the heart is pushing 
through a tube that is resisting the blood flow. Under normal healthy circumstances, when the part contracts, the elastic arteries of your central vasculature, they dilate and that helps to dissipate energy that's coming from the left ventricle. And that dissipation of energy helps to lower systolic blood pressure as it travels uh, throughout the body and eventually hitting those small delicate capillaries that are one layer thick. We need that. Now, the other important thing about uh, elastic arteries is that when they're expanding and the heart is back in diastole, they're gonna be able to recoil. And as they recoil, that's going to help push blood uh, continuously during diastole. So it's actually functioning like a artificial heart, if you will, through that, uh, that recoil helps to continue to the perfusion of blood flow throughout the body. So generally speaking, when you see healthy arterial systems, we generally see a lower systolic blood pressure and a somewhat normal, maybe elevated diastolic blood pressure. And a lot of people get this wrong. They, they, they assume that healthy arterial systems, you need low systolic and diastolic. Well, to answer that question um, and to get a, wrap your hand around this a little bit better, you have to think about what causes systolic blood pressure. Right? Left ventricle, right? So when we are lowering systolic blood pressure inside the artery, the artery is going to be able to expand and it dissipates, it acts like a buffer. And so if we see a reduction in systolic blood pressure, that tells me that the arteries are doing that. It's, it's buffering uh, thing. It's, it's, uh, it's able to lower the blood pressure. But in terms of diastolic blood pressure, uh, a lot of people are not, not very attuned to what's causing diastolic blood pressure. And so um, it's not the left ventricle. A part of that uh, pressure during diastole is coming from the recoil of that artery. So I would expect to see an increase in diastolic blood pressure in healthy arterial systems. And this, this, this created a paradigm shift in the way we're arguing about treating folks with high blood pressure, because normally you get treated if you had very, very high diastolic blood pressure. And this research uh, is looking at the fact that, wait a minute, it could be a good thing to have high diastolic blood pressure in the context of a, a high systolic blood pressure. So stiffer arteries generally are, can be measured uh, in certain ways we can take uh, videos of the artery, mainly the artery itself is going to be uh, captured on an ultrasound B mode where I can see the uh, expansion and the recoil of the artery. Uh, and uh, for obvious reasons, if that artery is not expanding as much or recoiling as much as it could before, we can deduce that it's becoming stiffer. Another way to capture it, the gold standard way is to measure something called pulse wave velocity. Pulse wave velocity is a concept where we measure the speed of the pulse as it travels through the artery. So when you feel your, arter, uh, your, your, um, your pulse on your wrist here, right? That actually starts in the heart um, and it travels the artery, uh, throughout the entire system, up the head, down, the, uh, down to the legs. And it, uh, it reflects, there are sites of impedance all along the arterial tree that causes the wave to reflect back to the heart. And what I do is I simply just measure the speed of that pulse as it travels to and from the heart. The faster the pulse is traveling, the stiffer the arteries are. And the analogy that I like to give to my students is imagine if I had um, two different material 
tied to a doorknob. So I have, in my one hand, I had a rope and the other one, I had a wire and I flung them both at the same time. And you can see the wave traveling. Which one's going to travel faster? It's going to be the wire because it's made of stiffer composite, stiffer material. And the same principle can be applied to the arterial system. When the elastin fibers are being replaced with collagen, that pulse wave is going to travel faster inside of it. And so I simply just measure how fast that pulse is traveling throughout the body. Do we know what um, what the amount of, like what's a normal value of... That's a great question. Great question. Wave so velocity. right now, we, we do not have... A, a cutoff range like we do with blood pressure. Everyone knows that healthy blood pressure uh, is anything less uh, than 120 over 80, right? Uh, anything above 140 over 90 is stage two hypertension. We don't have that yet for the uh, arterial stiffness. Now, looking in the Why literature- Why do you think that is? Uh, it's, it's a newer concept, you know, um, if you look at the literature and you ask how long does it take for the stuff that we learn in the lab to be brought into the medical profession, on average, it's around 17, 20 years. So 17 years. Uh, this is taking yeah. a lot longer. So why takes- like that 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 to me is such an interesting observation because um you know, we focus so much on the management of brachial blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And I think what we established is in in the conversation thus far is an increase in pulse wave velocity. It just means that there's a stiffer artery. Now, my next question is, since we don't have any normative values for pulse wave velocity, what you know it, it's it's almost difficult in in measuring it then because you can't really we don't have any um standard by which to compare our data so the question then becomes okay we have stiffer arteries right mm-hmm. what what are stiffer arteries generally associated with yeah. in terms of risks and then also does does an acute observation of an increase in arterial stiffness, however you're measuring it, because there's a number of ways, let's just stick with pulse pulse wave velocity, is that necessarily a bad thing given the potential for our body to adapt? So I know there's a lot of yeah. um, a lot of questions here, especially since you know. A lot of people are like pulse wave velocity, arterial stiffness. I've never heard of any of these things. So there is a consensus gathering that if you have a pulse wave velocity greater than 10 meters per second. So um, that has been associated with higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, If you look at the, some of Gary Mitchell's data from the Framingham study, uh, it suggested that anyone with a pulse wave velocity over 12 meters per second had the highest risk for a future cardiovascular event um, versus any of the other quartiles. So what does arterial stiffness end up doing, right? What does it do to the heart that's so bad that can cause these issues? Well, it does a couple things. So if your arteries are stiffer, 
right? The heart's going to have to contract with more vigor, with more aggression, right? And so it's going to have to squeeze harder. When it the resistance against that squeeze builds up, the heart has to adapt. And how does the heart adapt? Just like your skeletal muscles do when you add heavy weight to it, it's going to hypertrophy. And that's going to evolve into left ventricular, left ventricular hypertrophy. Some of the issues with left ventricular hypertrophy is the, the ventricle gets smaller and smaller. So ejection fractions can be compromised when the ventricles are getting smaller and smaller. Another issue. And that's not, but, but just for clarity, right? The left ventricular hypertrophy in this sense is more of a concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, correct? Mm -hmm. So the correct. eccentric. Yeah, eccentric is increasing ventricular size, correct. And and so, so yeah. that's the that's the adaptation that happens with a healthy heart, but yeah. an adaptation that happens with an unhealthy heart or a heart that's working just too hard is we should see an increase in concentric ventricular concentric remodeling. Correct, absolutely. Uh, so the other part is it's actually referred to the pulse wave. So when you have stiffer arteries, the the heart is not going to be able to perfuse its own myocardium. And it has to do with the pulse wave. Uh, so bear with me, I'm gonna to try to simplify this. So when that pulse wave is sent out into the periphery, right? It's gonna bounce, it's gonna bounce off sites of impedance. And it's gonna come back to the heart, usually in a healthy system during diastole. So as that pulse wave is coming back to the heart, what it's gonna do, it's gonna help to push the blood that's in the aorta through the coronary vasculature to feed the myocardium. 95% of the blood flow to the myocardium happens during diastole. So in a stiffer arterial system, what we have is we have a very tr fast traveling pulse wave. And that pulse wave comes back during systole, not diastole. And so you miss out on that opportunity to perfuse the tissue of that heart. And that leads to ischemia and heart failure. So it's those two pathologies that are thought to be the most important in, in terms of the, uh, the, the risk of arterial stiffness is, um, uh, arterial stiffness is considered one of the best predicting values for uh, a future cardiovascular event. You know, uh, in my world of, uh, 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 hold on, sorry, Nick, <laughs> crap. Am I? Your you mic came off. Yeah, sorry, no, we're good. All right. Your editor is going to kill me. So um, one of the things that uh, I just lost my thought. So talking about arterial stiffness and different conditions and mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I, I we you were going on looking at the importance of arterial stiffness. I mean, for me, yeah. for me, I think where this kind of goes is, okay, you've established that arterial stiffness is something that we may need to pay attention to, particularly mm. in those that have comorbidities. Um, and so my next question is, like you said, heart disease, heart failure, cardiovascular disease, heart failure. Um is what other what other conditions do 
present with increased arterial stiffness and great question and how you know where what does the evidence say regarding managing those types of individuals great question so uh what are some of the uh risk factors for developing arterial stiffness absolutely so we do know that uh, arterial stiffness is highly correlated with diabetes the uh the uh High levels of glucose flowing continuously around the blood have been shown to cause collagen cross-linking and elastin fragmentation. So it speeds up the process of stiffening. So if you're a type two diabetic, you're at increased risk of arterial stiffness. Uh, We also know that arterial stiffness is heavily associated with inflammation. So if you have a high inflammatory environment, this low grade systematic inflammation, uh, a, a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines, C-reactive proteins. Uh, I could go on and on. A lot of these uh, compounds have been shown to accelerate the stiffening process. And, and the third stressor or factor that can really modulate arterial stiffness is blood pressure per se. Blood vessels adapt. And when there's a lot of pressure on uh, that tissue, it's going to want to strengthen itself to increase its its stability, to increase its strength so it doesn't rupture. And one of the things that it undergoes is it, it's going to change its um, elastin network. It's going to remove a lot of that elastin and replace it with the collagen fibers. Now, it's going to be much more resilient and it's less likely to rupture, uh, but at the same time, it's going to have some clinical consequences on the heart. Uh, mainly, like I said, left ventricular hypertrophy and ischemia are, are typically the outcomes of that. So when we think about, like, I, I like to think about the body's ability to adapt and, mm-hmm. and that adaptation process is a stressor in and of itself. We think about the most common example um, that I'm interested in is hypertrophy or growing muscle. We we see uh, the occurrence of you know muscle damage that um, ultimately you know kind of goes away after we do it. That's you know an exercise bout um, a couple of times, and then the muscle ultimately is able to grow bigger through mm-hmm. elevations in utilizing that muscle protein synthesis, that stimulus from now reverting from a muscle damage and repair to a muscle growth perspective. Tendons become stiffer. Bones tend to increase in bone mineral density. So I guess my, my interest in arterial stiffness is if you're saying, you know, that, that this process of stress right? Is there a, is there a good stressor? Meaning that obviously we have situations where there's comorbidities, where you're having heightened levels of chronic low-grade inflammation that Mm -hmm. can produce those increases in arterial stiffness. But I'd like to think that the arterioles themselves and the arteries undergo a similar type of stress response And so I guess my question is more along the lines of, okay, you stress the artery in a healthy way. Is there 
you know, knowledge about the timeline of those adaptations? Are they similar to ex to, to strength training and, and muscular adaptations? Are they different? And, you know, is there too much of a good thing? Like yeah. if I'm exercising a ton and I'm like, all right, I want to do tons of cardio. Is, is, is that associated with yeah. stiffness and, you know, just too much of a good thing? Great question. So you look at the three factors that can stimulate arterial stiffness, you know, high glucose, inflammation, and high blood pressure. So we have to do a um, an attack on all three. And so the in my mind, the, the best treatment for that is exercise. So exercise can be a positive stimulus for arterial stiffness in the fact that it can lower blood glucose. We know that um, from clinical trials that individuals who are diabetic can see clinically uh, uh, clinically relevant reductions in blood glucose. Uh, we also know that um, exercise, aerobic, and resistance training are potent anti-inflammatory treatments. So um, someone who does uh, consecutive or consistent exercise over a lifetime is going to have a lower inflammatory profile. And so you're not going to see as Why is that? I think why yeah. why is that because i i don't think Couple a lot reasons. of people appreciate yeah. the fact that exercise is actually in the macroscopic view anti-inflammatory that that is that's where all the magic happens so uh, i teach clinical exercise physiology at the undergrad and graduate level and this is literally where exercise has most of its impact it is anti-inflammatory now, how is it anti-inflammatory? Well, it's going to attack the agents that are creating the inflammation. What creates inflammation? We know white blood cells. We know fat cells. Fat cells are very inflammatory. Not the, the fat cells that are on or um, underneath your skin, the subcutaneous fats. It's the visceral fat that is very Why is that? Uh, that's a great question. Why did evolution decide to have... Uh, so many of these cells in our belly to be inflammatory. But uh, to, to answer, to take a deeper dive there, what we do know is that the fat cells, liver cells, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the blood cells, they all evolve from a similar uh, stem line. So, you know, thousands and thousands of generations ago, these cells were pretty much uh, coming from the same uh, stem line, and they all had the same characters or similar characteristics. One of them being able to produce these inflammatory compounds to let other cells know that they're being attacked or hungry or whatever. Hundreds of thousands of generations to today, we still have these uh, cells with the same genetic programs in the, inside them, producing the same types of pro-inflammatory responses. Now, when you add the fact that these folks are having excessive amounts of these fat cells that are able to produce these pro-inflammatory cytokines. That is the critical link between many chronic diseases and inflammation. So when you have a lot of fat cells producing these inflammatory compounds, we know that inflammation can cause arterial stiffness. It's, leaded to it's linked to dementia, diabetes. We know it accelerates cancer. Uh, uh, it's associated with anemia. So you go on and on. You, you can look at the, uh, the the mechanistic aspects of inflammation and how it plays its role in all these unique chronic diseases. And it really just stems from, uh, stems from 
having an excessive amount of fat cell. Uh, but I don't want to just blame the fat cell. You know, there's, there's lifestyle behaviors that can also contribute to this as well. Uh, but the point is that exercise is anti-inflammatory because it can reduce the amount of pro-inflammatory cytokines being produced by these um, visceral fat cells. We also know that muscle cells, as they become well-trained, they produce much more anti-inflammatory signals, which can help in the uh, situation. So literally exercise is medicine. I've seen people cured of their diabetes uh, because they exercise and they, they can shift their inflammatory environment from one that was pro-inflammatory to one that's anti-inflammatory. And that helps to relieve the insulin inhibition that's going on inside them. So uh, it is indeed a very powerful aspect of exercise, one that a lot of people don't appreciate. I, I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to develop a pharmacological intervention that's going to target as many genes as staying active. And I think that ties back to just in general, my mission of promotion of exercise and helping get people back to the activities that they love as quickly as possible through things like exercise, mm -hmm. like BFR, which we'll segue into in a little bit, um, to help get them get them moving. And I think in relationship to your expertise and arterial stiffness, what are things, since we've established now that we should care about arterial stiffness, however, the evidence right now doesn't have um, a firm... Uh, cutoff values for post-exercise changes, right? Acutely, what, given the potential concerns regarding uh, regarding exercise-induced increases in arterial stiffness, what has been observed in long-term strength training and aerobic training programs that may suggest that the arteries, even with the potential for them to become a little bit stiffer in one way, shape, or form, actually undergo adaptation, like muscles and tendons and bones. So this is definitely an area of controversy. Does resistance training per se induce arterial stiffness? And intuitively, you would think that when you're doing resistance training, you're going to have very high levels of systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure. You know, I, I've seen systolic blood pressure is as high as 350 millimeters of mercury during a squat. You know, that's, that, that's momentarily. Have you seen like the McDougal? There was a McDougal study in 1985. It was like, like in a, a instantaneous peak systolic blood pressure of 480 over yeah. 350 or so, something along so, those lines yeah. where it's just so absurd. Yeah. But it also highlights the fact that our arterial system has the capacity on peak value yeah. to be able to actually manage a spike like that. So I just want to make it clear that was only for a few seconds. Uh, yeah, saying undergoing that pressure twenty four seven. It was the same thing, but suffice to say, the uh, the idea was is that if you expose yourself to that type of stimulus over time, the arteries are going to remodel. They're they're going to um, put more collagen in. 
And what the research has shown, at least my research, is that resistance training does not modulate the, uh, the, the stiffening process. Uh, the concern uh, when I was uh, you know, uh, growing up is that if you had high blood pressure, you shouldn't do resistance training because that will raise blood pressure, right? Uh, you'll have higher blood pressure after the exercise and definitely a few months into it, you'll have higher blood pressure at rest. It was based on anecdotal bad evidence. There is no evidence to support that uh, today. If you look at the ACSM recommendations, um, no, uh, in general, it can lower uh, blood pressure a little bit by three or four points, but the point is, is it doesn't raise it. And so we're, we're also seeing that with resistance training. It, it's, it doesn't benefit our stiffening process, uh, but it doesn't hurt it either. So do resistance training if you want without fear and retribution, essentially. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a great thing for your body. And, and what about argue, aerobic? And what about aerobic? So we have yeah. a negligible to slightly reduced pulse wave velocity, arterial stiffness slash may or may not correlate with a drop in yeah. systolic. So what's the, is there a different response to yeah. aerobic exercise? So, and if there is, why, why is it postulated that that happens? That's a great question. So uh, a couple of things with aerobic training, you don't see the large spikes in blood pressure. Yes, systolic blood pressure goes up, but not to the extent of resistance training. Uh, another uh, idea or um, mechanism at play here is we know that um, aerobic training seems to be more potent in terms of producing anti-inflammatory products and reducing pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines and chemokines and things like that. Uh, so with that respect, one of the reasons why we, we, we see this lower stiffening process in folks that do a lot of aerobic training uh, compared to their uh, sedentary non-trained counterparts is because of this lower inflammatory profile that that type of training brings about and that protects against a lot of the stiffening process going on. Um, it, it discourages uh, collagen cross-linking. It discourages elastin fragmentation. And these are all good things if you want to maintain an elastic profile. So what then um, does this say about acute measures of arterial stiffness? If we're, you know, what is the potential relevancy that we can get from these type of investigations? So that's a, another great question. It, it's important because we have to understand if, if, the exercise regimen is going to be acutely dangerous for someone. So someone has high blood pressure, they have diabetes, uh, they, they might have had a uh, recent heart attack. You know, if you go down the list, we need to establish the fact that will exercise raise our chill stiffness acutely and will that have an impact? Um, so far, in our research together, we, we have not seen that, right? Um, the, uh, the exercise acute response generally shows that arterial stiffness, uh, it doesn't stay elevated very long after exercise. And that is a great thing to know, knowing that 
this individual that we just trained can go back home without fear of any um, reactions or secondary outcomes from the exercise. Uh, now, one can also point out the fact that what, what's the clinical significance of knowing the acute response if someone only trains once a month or every two months or something like that? No, there, there is no clinical impact. So the, the, the more impactful studies, of course, will be the long-term studies that will give us uh, a better idea of the overall impact of training, whether it's aerobic training or resistance training on uh, the, uh, the occurrence of arterial stiffness. So uh, I've, uh, it's been a couple of years, but I, I've completed two such studies, resistance training studies. And uh, I did one resistance training study for 12 weeks in untrained males. And then I went back and I did a, a, another 11-week uh, resistance training study in females. And I put them on a training program that was uh, recommended by the National Strength Conditioning Association. So it was a full body workout. They were training three, four days a week in the gym. And I was measuring arterial stiffness profiles throughout. And we saw no increase in arterial stiffness after a more chronic intervention. Now, people can fault us and say one out a year or two years. So there are limitations with that. Um, but the, the fact remains that it, it seems uh, at least for the first few months of training that you, you should not have any impact on your arterial stiffness scores. Uh, stay tuned. Should, should, the, uh, should, should after three months of training, should there be a divergent response I like, would not anticipate, but uh, that's speculation right now. So uh -huh. that, that does require further investigation. But at this point, I don't, there's no evidence for me to believe that. Okay. So there's going to be a lot of people that are listening that are clinicians working with people that have comorbidities. Mm -hmm. um, is there any way that easy way or clinically feasible way that people can get an idea of their the person that they're working with measure of arterial stiffness. I know you're you're skilled in pulse wave velocity, and um, you know that is a a dual task um, mm -hmm. type of of measurement. But is there anything that's clinically available that can give you some ballpark idea or is this really left for like it's, the exercise physiology? Yeah. So the, the closest non-invasive at home measurement uh, is pulse pressure. So pulse pressure is a very simple metric. Um, you, you just take someone's systolic blood pressure and you minus, you subtract it from diastolic blood pressure. And what it, tells me is it tells me uh, the pressure gradient between the difference between systolic and diastolic. And generally speaking, I want to see a pressure gradient around 40 millimeters of mercury, 50 millimeters of mercury. And if that pressure gradient is expanding, if it's getting bigger, that tells me that systolic blood pressure is higher and diastolic blood pressure is dropping. That is indication of stiffer arteries. So if there's a larger pulse pressure, but I always have to say this with a caveat there. There are some uh, strong reservations against that method. Um, it, it's heart rate dependent and some other things. So um, please uh, do your due diligence and if possible, get your arterial stiffness score measured either with an ultrasound or 
some type of arterial tonometer. Yeah. So how is that process kind of yeah. done? Um, yeah, so, somebody is like, Hey, I might be a little apprehensive about putting this person through a moderate to high load strength training program. Um, where could, you know, how does that process look? So this is one thing that we've been fighting for, for a while, uh, in an ideal setting, uh, we would have everyone's arterial stiffness measured at the physician's visit, uh, but it does take time. Uh, for one, the individual has to be laying down for at least 10 minutes. And then what I do is I place tonometers on the carotid artery, on the radial artery, and then also their femoral artery. And I- Tonometers uh, are? Tonometers are pressure receptors. They, 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 can, they can measure the presence of a pulse wave the timing of the pulse wave. So the only other thing you need is an ECG. So the ECG tells me when the pulse wave starts, you look at the R wave off of the ECG, that tells that starts the, the time watch, if you will. And once the pulse wave hits the arterial site, we stop the timer, we measure uh, how much time it took to go from here to here or here to the radial or here to the femoral. Uh, and then simply all you have to do is with the measuring tape, you just have to measure the distance between these sites. And you can get uh, meters per second pretty quickly. Um, so that's probably the easiest. And by the way, gold standard way of doing it is measuring uh, something called uh, carotid femoral pulse wave velocity. Um, it's simply just putting those tonometers on the arterial sites, getting that time measurement, and then just measuring the distance between them. Now, another way to do it, um, is looking at uh, the, uh, the, the diameter of the uh, carotid, or if you have better, more sophisticated equipment, looking at the diameter of the aorta itself, but seeing how far it can expand in recoil and just measuring those changes over time. Is it expanding more, recoiling more, or is it less? So um, just a snapshot view of these scores, uh, of those images won't tell me much. I would have to see that over time. Because again, we are limited in, in terms of scale. We, we can't tell you exactly when you're at very, very high risk of a future cardiovascular event. We have some associations, like if your pulse wave velocities are 10 meters per second, that we know that you're higher risk, but how much higher, that still has to be worked out. What about, what about acute increases? Is there any cutoffs? that you're aware of for not that i'm aware that. of no so if we're seeing acute bouts generally uh, uh, uh an acute rise in arterial stiffness does not lead to you know chronic heart remodeling per se so this 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 is a process that takes many many years to develop so it's not going to happen overnight so if it's a consistently acute response Every time after exercise, yeah, then I would be concerned. But um, one acute elevation uh, in arterial stiffness uh, is nothing to, that I would be concerned with at this point. All right. Well, is there any other um, pieces of info related to arterial stiffness that people don't really appreciate or, or aware of that they should be aware of? Or do we cover kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the significance of mm -hmm. arterial stiffness? I guess, I guess for me, I'm still, you know, when I first 
um, one of, I think my third publication was looking, uh, was a systematic review mm-hmm. that was on the arterial stiffness effects of blood flow restricted exercise. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time, believe it or not, that I was av- ever actually introduced in any capacity to measures of arterial stiffness. And so I guess for me, the question becomes, why hasn't arterial stiffness, not saying that it hasn't caught on, but why hasn't it caught on um, as something that people are considering given that this is really measuring the strain on the heart and the stress on the aortic arch. That's a that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. What's in Six, the just sixty four thousand? Just sixty four? Yeah. Okay. Or maybe in today's money was that sixty four million dollar question. <laughs> so possibly uh, it could be politics. One of the issues with arterial stiffness is that's going to be. Uh, uh, an extra stress on doctors during doctor visitations. Uh, that's an extra, you know, 15, 20 minutes that someone's got to spend in the physician's office to get these measurements. We don't have a very quick measurement like we do with blood pressure. Um, I, I, I think. I guess for me thinking yeah. about it too, it's, If somebody, for example, if I'm working with a client or a patient that has blood pressure of 150 over, you know, 80 or 150 over 90, do I assume that they have higher degrees of arterial stiffness than somebody who's at 120 over 80? Uh, If it's a consistent elevation, yeah, I would, uh, uh, I would air on caution there. So I, I would definitely, um, can you say that's question again? So I don't screw up the answer. Well, no, just saying like, if you have somebody that's, that's like 150 yeah, over, you can over 80 yeah. versus one. So that's- yeah, I would, I would definitely think, um, that the individual with the higher blood pressure has the higher risk not guarantee risk, but a higher risk of the arterial stiffness process happening. Now, and then the person that's 120 impact, or 80. Yeah, I mean, like, does that impact your exercise selection with somebody? So if you're saying, hey, um, like I'll give you an example. Like yeah. when I'm working with somebody and I know that they're hypertensive and I may or may not be applying blood flow restricted exercise uh, or blood flow restriction to them, there are certain things that I go through in my head of, oh, well, maybe if I don't want to spike their blood pressure, I'm going to reduce the total amount of muscle mass that's going to be involved. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm going to program BFR a little bit differently than I would someone who's normal tensive. Is there something that we should be aware of? So say we have somebody that we know has stiffer arteries. Yeah. Does that impact our programming in any significant capacity? Or is that no, it more- does not. Like that's just more like in the back of our mind, this is their underlying physiology and we should just be aware of that. Currently there is no recommendation. So I default to the ACSM recommendations for hypertension. So for instance, 
if someone has a blood pressure over 200, systolic blood pressure over 200, uh, they are generally ill-advised to begin an aerobic training program. If they're about to do a resistance training program and their systolic blood pressure is over 180 millimeters of mercury, then they're ill-advised to do a resistance training program on that day. Generally what we say in that, in that situation, uh, you probably misdosed yourself or uh, underdosed yourself, go home, make sure you take your medicines, come back and let's, let's try it another day. Uh, but right now we do not, as you pointed out, we, we, we can't measure someone's arterial stiffness and say, okay, it's good for you today. Go ahead and work out. Or it's not good. Unfortunately, I, I would think that would be a better index of uh, risk profile versus the uh, blood pressure assessment. But again, we're, we're still lacking in that research. And how, how much do these pieces of equipment go for, right? And how yeah. is the training process to actually do that? So if you're somebody who, you know, say I wanted to add this as part of my assessment, what, what are kind of the steps that you would have to go to to integrate this into your practice? Depending on the model, uh, I mean, there's some that can go for $10,000. There's others upwards of $50,000, uh, depending on your wants and needs. Yeah. Um, so the, the the most common one that I see is the Sigma Core um, tonometer. It runs about 20 grand. Um, but again, uh, you there are a lot of choices out there depending on your wants and needs, whether you want to just collect central uh, pulse wave velocity, if you want to uh, collect peripheral and central pulse wave velocity, or if you want to get really into the, the pressure wave itself, looking at augmentation index and some other variables. Um, it just depends on what you're looking for, what you want to analyze. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, I'm always looking for ways to try to integrate back into practice because, you know, we can all be very interested in the physiology, but if, if we can try to apply this knowledge into our day-to-day -day in some capacity, it's always, it's always a bonus. Um, so yeah. So pivoting, I wanted to, unless you had any other. Yeah. Uh, so the actual technique itself is not, not very difficult. I mean, uh, someone can learn this in uh, probably just a few days of being able to uh, palpate for the pulse Play, placing correct pressure, I would say, be the hardest part. So, you know, you don't push too hard but to erase the pulse, but you also don't want to press too lightly and they can change the pressure reading. So it does, in that respect, it does take a little experience, but um, this is not this is not rocket science. I'm literally just putting devices to capture uh, a pulse wave as it travels through the artery and then I measure the distance that it travels. Um, so it's it's not terribly complicated. All right. Well, that's always good to know. I'm thinking about doing some ultrasound, diagnostic ultrasound and integrating that into my practice um, because I feel that it, it could help contextualize in certain circumstances how I'm integrating um, you know, my interventions or explaining to clients or patients or something. So any opportunity where there's a low barrier to entry, because ultrasound is a very high barrier uh, in terms of contact hours and, and everything. Um, is there anything else on arterial stiffness in the physiology yeah. or anything cool that 
we haven't yeah. really discussed like before. This. So when you take your blood pressure in the periphery and your your break your artery, that's not your true blood pressure. That's the pressure in your arm. We are interested in the pressure that is outside the aorta. We want to know what's what's going on just outside the heart. And so the pressure that you have here in your break your artery is rarely does it equal the pressure in the aorta. Most of the time it's going to be lower. And that's one of some of the things that we're finding is that your central blood pressure, systolic and diastolic typically are lower, or I should say systolic is lower, diastolic uh, doesn't change uh, between sites. But the point that I wanted to make here is that a lot of people are being misdiagnosed with hypertension. So they could have in theory, very high blood pressure out in the periphery, but lower pressure centrally, but yet they get diagnosed based on the peripheral pressure. And that unfortunately has led to a lot of people um, experiencing unwanted side effects of antihypertensive medications. And so one of the uh, arguments for doing this, uh, this uh, arteriosteptis analysis is that it allows me to see what the central pressures are, uh, not invasively to get a better overall indicator what true pressures the, heart are, the heart's facing against. Uh, and it's done quite simply. Um, so what we have to do from the tonometer on the neck, uh, I'm gonna get a pressure in the carotid, which is calibrated to the pressure in the brachial. Um, and, and all devices use what we call a transfer function. It is a fancy algorithm that no one can look at. It's proprietary. But the, uh, the manufacturers of these tonometers, what they'll do is they'll take the shape and the size of the pressure wave in the carotid and they'll calibrate it to the blood pressure in the brachial. And then they're able to, uh, through the algorithm, figure out what central blood pressure is. And of course, this has to be validated. And so they, they do catheterization studies to validate their, their algorithm. Uh, but uh, some are very effective uh, at, at capturing central blood pressure this way. So just because you have high systolic blood pressure in the periphery does not necessarily mean that you have high systolic blood pressure in, in, in around the uh, aorta. So, um, and, and we could get into the physiology why that is, uh, but I, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, so if you have somebody that you're saying, oh, my doc, just told me I have high blood pressure. And, you know, would you say before somebody um, would go on blood pressure medication that it could be something that would be interesting to get a, you know, a pulse wave velocity assessment to actually see how stiff the arteries are and, you know, sort of measure central hemodynamics before going on a pharmacological intervention? Yeah, great, great question. So first and foremost, I'm a PhD, not an MD, so I can never override what a physician- Of course, is. of course, of course. But uh, I would take it in context. If I have uh, a diabetic who is also um, overweight, obese, and they have high- peripheral blood pressure, chances are they're probably going to have central blood pressure issues as well. But yeah, if in those instances where you have this newly diagnosed hypertensive and there's no other signs or symptoms, perhaps a closer look at the central uh, hemodynamic scores can give us a better indicator of whether or not this person truly does need pharmacological intervention. Um, 
unfortunately, we're just not there yet. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the technique, the equipment, uh, the infrastructure for doing all this is just not ready for it. Okay. Yeah. So I, I know we're winding down here, but I definitely want to um, talk briefly about how we met and ultimately um, have started to pursue this line of research that's combining your passion and expertise for arterial stiffness and my uh, thirst for understanding the ways in which we can safely apply blood flow restriction depending on the different types of features that mm-hmm. a cuff could have. Um, so for those that, that are listening, blood flow restriction, brief and foremost, is use of typically a cuff that's calibrated by some sort of technology that um, that when inflated to a percentage of your blood pressure for that particular cuff width, commonly called arterial or limb occlusion pressure, um, which is basically getting your blood pressure taken, but with a cuff of a variable size. Mm-hmm. Um, and we exercise at a percentage of that. And a lot of research has come out in the last decade in particular that supports the efficacy of low intensity exercise with blood flow restriction. And they say low intensity exercise because blood flow restriction basically mimics the 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 physiology or the the in the the muscular environment that would be present in high intensity strength training simplifying it but that allows us to obtain the vast majority of the same benefits as if we were lifting heavy or we were doing a higher intensity cardiovascular exercise so with that being said um, my background is in BFR specifically with a variety of different cuffs. So I teach um, with the BFR pros as part of my education wing. Um, I teach with a variety of different BFR equipment. Um, and I really am interested in understanding um, does is the marketing that's been that's been given to the clinicians, is it really based in science and does that have an impact on the way in which that individual or individuals respond to BFR exercise? And this is a brand new area of research. Um, so new, in fact, that when Tim and I got connected via my colleague, uh, Nick Licamelli in what is this 2020 or 2020 something yeah. like that it was like a long like a couple of years ago um that we basically you know decided that we were going to merge the, the you know our my interest in understanding at that point auto regulation so auto regulation is the use of 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 cuff that can actually adjust to the phase of muscular contraction as you're going and doing an exercise. So for example, the cuff will attempt to maintain a similar pressure on the exercising limb as you're going into concentric or the muscle shortening phase or the eccentric, the muscle lengthening phase. And that's been studied um, or a lot of different devices have autoregulation or some uh, devices have it. And it's been studied very frequently in the Delphi personalized tourniquet 
device, but there's really prior to us collaborating, there's really no evidence that auto regulation serves, you know, any sort of effect other than being able to uh, reduce the perceptual uh, response relative to other cuffs that don't auto regulate, but also, which is another getting into the weeds, which is definitely not the topic of this podcast, uh, that it was better able to maintain set uh, set interface pressure, which basically just means that when I plug in a value like 150, so if I'm applying 150 millimeters of mercury to your limb, that that 150 millimeters of mercury is actually getting applied to the underlying limb. And as the pressure changes, it's able to adjust and maintain that pressure on the exercising limb. So besides that, there was really nothing out there that directly looked at the autoregulation feature um, when we first started discussing this uh, this project. We had a paper that was published before our paper that ended up, uh, that I also was involved in, that ended up reaching publication first, but ultimately that allowed us to combine our two uh, expertise, uh, our expertise and, and knowledge to kind of figure this out. So want to like just talk briefly about what we did in our first study in the lower body and then talk about what we did in the upper body and talk about the differences since you were the one collecting data um, in the responses and what, you know, kind of we found and what are our next steps in this collaboration? Yeah. First, I just want to reiterate, uh, Nick, he eats, sleeps, uh, blood flow restrictive training. He's always thinking blood flow restrictive. Did you ever, did, when did you hear about BFR first and foremost? Uh, probably a few months before I met uh, Nick at uh, Mark ACSM. And I was, I'm, I'm looking for newer training techniques that have not assessed arterial stiffness. And so back in my mind, blood flow restrictive training, gotta, gotta start analyzing this. This is this is new. This is something that's growing. We, we got to look into this. And so uh, just got lucky enough to bump into Nick and then he led me to you. And here we are. And so our, our first study, we, we looked at the effects of uh, blood flow restriction trading, autoregulation versus non-autoregulation. So non-autoregulated devices don't change diameter uh, as, the, uh, as the muscle is contracting. So that is thought to induce more pressure in the muscle and the vasculature during that contraction process. So we were looking at the effects of non-auto versus auto regulation on wall squats. And so we had about, I think, 25 participants where we put the um, devices around their thighs and they went through three randomized treatment trials. Uh, one was auto-regulated, the other was non-auto-regulated, and the third was no BFR cup. And so they were training, uh, they, were, they were doing four sets with or without these cuffs using about four, uh, excuse me, 20% of their 1RM, and they were going to failure. So every time we would count how far they went uh, for each set, and they would get a break in between. Uh, uh, during the BFR sessions, the cuffs re remained on and inflated. And then after the, the, the set, we also looked into some perception scores. So we, we wanted to know the RPE, RPD, and how likely- Rate of perceived exertions, or how hard they're working, rate, yeah. rating of perceived discomfort, how much 
uncomfortable feelings that were in the thigh just for people that correct and then how likely would they do that same exercise again if they if they could and what we found uh interesting enough we we, we did see a significant drop in central pulse wave velocity in the autoregulated arm of the uh, the study um, it dropped by about 0.5 uh, meters per second and when there's an increase in arterial stiffness of one or more meters per second, that is correlated with the, uh, around a 10% increase in all-cause mortality, all mortality related to cardiovascular disease. So, you know, that's not nothing. Um, now, granted, this was just an acute response. So all we saw is just one bout of this uh, training and reducing arterial stiffness a little bit uh, with the autoregulated, the uh, non-autoregulated and the BFR, there was no change. So with that, we wanted to move to the limbs, uh, to the upper body limbs. And so uh, we put together a similar study, this time putting the cuffs around the arms and doing bicep curls. 20% of the 1RM doing the curl, four sets to failure. And uh, this time we found... Um, basically no changes between the stiffest scores. So whether we were looking at um, pulse wave velocity or another indice of arterial stiffness, which we call beta stiffness index, that involves some of the images from the carotid. Uh, we didn't see any differences between those groups. And speculating now, more research is needed. One of the reasons why we, why I think we saw a change in uh, central femoral pulse wave velocity in the leg, but not the arm, has to do with the anatomical location of the device. So uh, the arms, the, the blood pressure cuffs were much closer to the heart, and that could have affected the return wave um, to the heart, speeding up the pulse, which could have impacted blood pressure and things like that. So uh, where the cuff is further away from the heart, you might have more of a buffering effect. Um, so where we're going next is we're going to be looking at whether or not there's a, uh, a change in a single chamber cuff using Delphi industry uh, BFR cuffs versus a multi-chamber cuff, the B-strong cuff. Multi-chamber uh, cuffs have multiple pressure chambers in there in them, and they create a, uh, a blood flow limitation during uh, the venous return or you should probably yeah, yeah no no you're right yeah i mean um, it's uh, it's marketed as being it's marketed as being a safer alternative for blood flow restriction but this is you know even though it's an acute study yeah. this is going to give us an idea which we didn't even really talk about in your two summaries which all hit on um but staying with the topic of multi-chambered they, yeah. it's specifically designed to not occlude because inside of the cuff, there are spaces and pockets in between the two air bladders or in between the air bladders and the, between the two bladders that it would connect that allow for expansion in the skin. And thus any sort of pressure that's applied is not necessarily, you know, even though it's calculated in millimeters of mercury, it's not the same as a single chambered system. And so our interest now is in keeping on with this vein of arterial stiffness and separating the science from the marketing 
is does this impact the arterial stiffness, but also the perceptual responses. So how comfortable the exercise um, is and how hard they're working, which shouldn't really change because we're exercising them all to failure and looking at the volume, which is the thing that was mirrored in both of our investigations, which basically showed that in the legs, there were no in there was no impact of autoregulation on allowing the exerciser to do more just because the cuff is autoregulated. And that's a really, really, really important finding. The arterial stiffness, the, the that is very interesting as well in terms of it blunting, and that has the potential for people that have comorbidities. That again, we didn't we did it on healthies, right? So we we the next step in that investigation would be to do it on those with some sort of comorbidities, um, and then ultimately a longitudinal. But because the performance variables, so the volume and the volume load which is just the amount of reps times the load was not different between the BFR conditions, but both were significantly uh, lower than the free flow, which mirrors the, the current body of evidence, both BFR conditions, accelerated repetitions to fatigue faster than the low intensity. What was really, really, really important about both of the results in our investigation from my angle, right? Not mm -hmm. the, uh, the arterial stiffness angle, which is yours, my angle was, oh, okay, but the, the impact of autoregulation doesn't really have an impact on how many reps somebody can perform, whether it's autoregulated or not. Both of them are going to increase the amount of discomfort that's experienced by the exerciser. And it was only a it was a moderate to to high level of, of discomfort, which again you would anticipate based mm -hmm. on exercise to fatigue, um, which aligns with a lot of with 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 the work that we did uh, with our meta analysis um, with one of my colleagues in Brazil. But I can't stress how important the that the volume issue is because it doesn't impact the exercise prescription when you're using the Delphi personalized tourniquet device. Conversely, the study that I was involved in that was published prior, the first one in the field, was using another device, the smart cuffs. And the smart cuffs auto-regulation responsiveness, which is just not at the same level mm -hmm. as the Delphi. So what they did in that study was we had people exercise in a fixed, a 30, 15, 15, 15 rep scheme, and then a failure repetition scheme. And we had them do leg extensions. We did wall squats in ours due to equipment, you know, equipment limitations. But um, they found that the auto-regulated cuffs actually were able to perform significantly more volume than the non-autoregulated cuffs in the failure routine. And that perplexed me, but didn't really surprise me just given the responsiveness of that autoregulation feature. And that has a clinical importance because if you're a researcher that you're now studying or you're, you're a clinician that's using BFR, using the smart cuffs versus using the Delphi or using the Delphi versus the smart cuffs, you're going to have potentially different responses physiologically as well as on a performance basis. 
And the second part that that Tim uh, that we we looked at that Tim because um, he's an arterial stiffness guy and I'm the the BFR guy um, is ironically we in either of our studies did not have a single adverse response to BFR exercise. Adverse responses could be anything from lightheadedness to worst case scenario, rhabdomyolysis, which is excessive muscle damage versus the first study that was out with the smart cuffs showed that autoregulation actually had a near three times risk reduction in getting an adverse response, which the majority of our responses, I think 16 of them in the total totality of the um, trial, only 16 adverse responses of which 13 were dizziness or lightheadedness of various capacities, which can happen with BFR. We found none, which is also very surprising because we did not have a light familiarization session. We went full blown, which is definitely not recommended in clinical practice to have people exercise to volitional fatigue with BFR on the first session. So I guess, you know, with, with Tim, you know, Tim, what were the participants, you know, kind of saying and stuff that, that kind of is left off the, the pages of the research project uh, regarding those interventions? So yeah, there definitely was a, a big difference in uh, perception or discomfort compared to no BFR, but comparing auto versus non-auto, I had a few participants that had a, a stronger discomfort response with the auto. Uh, it's generally when you're performing these things, the, the discomfort is not as terrible as the rest period. So when you put the weights down and now you're resting that seems to be the the, the time when most discomfort is experienced um, and so I what I've noticed is a few of my participants being more vocal during the rest period with the cups pumped up and this is during the auto-regulated um, it, it, it could be because the, the the cups are recalibrating they're 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 contracting harder during that time period. Uh, but needless to say, uh, I had a few individuals that were only able to get uh, a few extra reps after the first set. So they might've gotten 20, 30, 40 reps, the first set, second set, third set, maybe one or two. Uh, so uh, that wasn't a common response, but I did see it probably two or three times. So I guess is in, in, are two research projects and we're still going to continue along the vein of of looking at autoregulation and particularly considering that you know we've done a multi-joint lower body exercise we could do a single joint lower body exercise we can do multiple exercises which i think is is really the next step is just adding another exercise that's more indicative of clinical practice instead of just one. Um, but we also can do a multi-joint upper body exercise as well. But where, where do you kind of 
see the role of auto regulation and i must say caveat using the delphi personalized tourniquet device because that's the device that we're studying um where do you see that as something that clinicians are are weighing options of is auto regulation something that they should really consider yeah i i think the impact will come from more of those longitudinal studies. Sure, we can show them that it's acutely safe, um, but they're going to be interested in the long-term impact. And so until those studies are um, produced, I, I think we're going to have a lot of uh, physical therapists just sitting at the sideline waiting um, for those outcomes. So where I want to go next well, with our research is designing some of these longitudinal studies where we're having folks train six, 10 weeks with the BFR cuffs and just measuring arterial stiffness and perception scores along the way, uh, just trying to characterize if there's any influence on the stiffening process. Um, and we're also interested in not only just resistance training, but aerobic training as well. And so one of the things uh, as a researcher there's, you, you try to find your niche, an area that's not explored and you continue down this rabbit hole for as long as you can hold it. And so I, I think indeed we have a big rabbit hole that's gonna keep us very busy for a long time trying to answer some of these questions so that clinicians can make the best decision possible for their patients. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so funny just thinking about it because Really, you know, prior to our study in the lower body, there really wasn't a investigations utilizing central pulse wave velocity. Yeah. There was peripheral measures, mm -hmm. which do tell us some status of the arterial system. But in reality, our paper was really the first step in bringing, you know, knowledge of arterial stiffness into the BFR space. And I think if, you know, at least acutely, right, being scientists and understanding that we can't make gratuitous claims mm -hmm. from acute data, but at the very least, we can say what about autoregulation, about BFR, what are the, the main takeaways from our work together thus far? Uh, thus far, autoregulation does not seem to um, hurt the, uh, the stiffening process, and if applied to the legs, can actually help uh, reduce some of that stiffening process. Um, the, the other thing I would like to point out is the fact that when we looked at, like, what was the likelihood of doing the exercise again? it was similar across all treatments, meaning that a lot of our folks enjoyed the BFR um, as much as they did the no BFR. They, they liked that discomfort, um, which is, you know, um, confusing at first, but when you think about training and the, uh, the nature of folks that are doing training, we're all used to muscle pain and, pain equals gains is usually is the, the mantra. And so knowing that you're doing, you're partaking in an activity that is going to eventually lead to more physiological adaptation, it makes you happy. And so uh, 
and we 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 calibrate ourselves to that pain because we know that pain is uh, associated with some type of muscle damage uh, impairment that will eventually lead to um, more adaptations down the road. So that I, I found encouraging is that uh, a lot of uh, my participants love doing the BFR stuff. And they, they were constantly asking me, where can I buy this? Where do I get this? I'm like, well, Delphi is not on the market. You need a physician uh, prescription for it. And, but there, there are other devices out there on the market, but of course, buyer beware uh, some of the claims and uh, some of the weaknesses of those devices. Um, yeah, that's all I got for that one. <laughs> no, I think, I think that's, I think that's, you know, very appropriate. I think for, for me as, as you kind of tacked on the enjoyment, but also the arterial stiffness responses for me, again, it goes back to if you're a clinician and you're utilizing the Delphi personalized tourniquet device, you can be assured that you're not going to you know, it's not going to be any different than if you didn't have autoregulation, meaning that the Delphi, which, which you can't do anyways, because we had it specially manufactured um, a setting, mm -hmm. but that if it didn't have autoregulation, it's not like you're going to be able to do more or less work for your clients. And I think that's important when we talk about prescription of BFR. I think that we're, um, we've done a very stressful protocol on purpose. Mm -hmm. It is a healthy population, right? That's why we had them exercise to fatigue that gave us the best chance to induce a, an arterial stiffening response. And, and this should be reassuring that when we think about one of the safety concerns about blood flow restriction, and again, I preface this as the fact that these are healthy participants, but even in that, there is evidence to suggest in, in compromised populations, much like normal resistance exercise has been now more and more promoted as a beneficial therapeutic approach than other, you know, sitting there and doing nothing, right? Or even taking pharmacologicals in some, you know, in some mm -hmm. examples, um, that BFR is likely safe on, on the heart. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is something that has been brought up and is is mentioned not super frequently but frequently enough where our assessments should give credence to the idea that um it doesn't create an unnatural physiologic stress mm -hmm. to the heart and in fact based on the body region might even be something that is somewhat protective although mm -hmm. again who knows what what happens in a longitudinal design um and i still am shocked that in you know 50 plus participants in in no one had an adverse mm -hmm. response of any kind when exercising mm -hmm. to volitional fatigue i think that is a very um more unique uh response in that i would anticipate at least one of mm -hmm. some way shape or form like reduction in 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 pressure right we also used 
to be fair, a light a lighter relative pressure of 60% of the supine limb occlusion or arterial occlusion pressure. Um, and we did that just because that's kind of the minimum therapeutic value um, in, in the legs at least. Um, and we did that in the arms as well, which is a little bit more than what is recommended, which should also give you comfort if you're a clinician, because now you're like, okay, I'm having people doing upper body exercise and there's no difference between auto-regulated, non-auto-regulated or low load mm -hmm. exercise. And it really didn't create a negative stimulus. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know, should give you a little bit more comfort. And those kind of, for me, putting my physical therapy hat on is is kind of the takeaways from our 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 two investigations uh, thus far. Anything to add? No, you're you're right in line. Uh, we looked at rate pressure product, uh, uh, the workload of the heart. It's a simple equation: heart rate times systolic blood pressure. We didn't see any differences between groups. So yeah, um, uh, with respect to the heart, in an acute uh, trial, that the BFR does not seem to have any negative consequences on the cardiovascular network, uh, and as you said, should give some relief to clinicians who have patients suffering from cardiovascular disease. Um, but again, those studies are still needed to 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 ensure. That would be a great, that would be a great, that would be an ideal you know, study to do. Great. But, you know, unfortunately we're, limit limitations in, in, in a lot maybe of things, one uh, maybe one day. All right. Well, let's, let's, um let's wrap up. So if you have, mm -hmm. if you have one or two things that listeners should walk away from regarding arterial stiffness, what, what should they what should they be? Uh, one of the uh, big recommendations, take-home messages from the classes that I teach, you know, exercise seems to be one of the best treatment options for limiting the development of arterial stiffness because we're all going to have stiff arteries as we age. The longer you live, the more likely you're going to be exposed to inflammatory agents, high glucose, high pressure. So stiffening is going to happen. But uh, a lifetime of exercise can rescue from a fate of stiffer arteries. Uh, so I, I know it's not selling uh, aesthetics for a lot of folks right now that want to exercise to look better, but it is indeed medicine. It is, it's a very, very potent treatment for uh, blunting the effect of arterial stiffness later in life. Uh, but then again, uh, we, if we look at pharmacological interventions, uh, they can also be somewhat supportive. Uh, the, the, one of the issues with pharmacological interventions, uh, they might only attack it at one front. So you have three different fronts that are causing it. You take high blood pressure medicine. That's So you knock out one of the fronts, but there's still two other you have to contend with. And so a lot of these folks um, who are on polypharmacy, they're, they're taking multiple medications. You know, a lot of this can be um, uh, can be substituted with exercise, exercise, exercise. Now, um, push the corner. What type of exercise should someone be doing? Uh, we're still recommending both a aerobic and resistance training regimen. Uh, we do not 
favor one over the other. We, we, we want both because both stress the body in different ways, eliciting different physiological adaptations. So uh, in a nutshell, follow the ACSM guidelines and you'll see stiffest profiles improve. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's my big take home message from this right now. Um, whether or not yeah, I think uh, we, I think we hit on I think we hit on all of our uh, blood flow restriction takeaways, so no need to rehash those. Uh, <laughs> you can edit so, this. It's like crap. Did I say that? <laughs> so so I guess where can people find you um, if they want to reach out? Is there anything that you want to give uh, end of podcast shout out to? Uh, now is your time before we, we wrap up. Well, yeah, uh, I'm, I, I love questions. And, uh, so if you ever want to contact me again, I'm at Salisbury university in the exercise science department. Uh, my email is TJ Werner. That's TJ W E R N E R at salisbury.edu. And I just want to give a, a, a warm thank you to uh, Delphi industries for allowing us to continue with this research, uh, as we, we keep going down this rabbit hole. Cool. And Nick, of course, I got to thank Nick. He comes up with all the great ideas. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just fortunate in this collaboration to be able to merge our two yeah. interests into fruitful research collaborations. And there is so many that we we can pursue so i'm just really excited for the future and i just wanted to say thank you so much for hopping on the podcast and this has been a lot of fun yeah and this has been the bfr better for results podcast with me nick rolnick the human performance mechanic signing off have a great rest of your day And that was today's episode of the BFR Better for Results podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, I would love if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're watching or listening on. I really appreciate the support.